Hi, Anam. Uh, thanks for being uh, here with us today. Uh, congratulations about your book, The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, which I have read and greatly enjoyed, and I think provides a very timely uh, angle for the conversation we're going to have ahead of the American elections. Let us just start with Donald Trump and the way he handled his coronavirus infection. At this stage, does he still have the capacity to surprise you with the things he does or says? I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, as soon as he got sick, um, I knew that he would try to use the illness however he can to, 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 to win, because that's the only thing that he's interested in. And the narrative that, you know, I will beat the illness because I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm because I'm so tough also doesn't surprise me. And this is exactly the same language that Bolsonaro used um, when he got sick in Brazil. And I'm, I'm not remotely surprised. So, I mean, this is, this is very, everything, you know, Trump in a weird way is um, very easy to understand. I mean, I don't think there's anything, I mean, one of the things that's so frustrating um, writing about him is that one begins to feel like one says the same things over and over and over again, because he's actually a very simple character. It's not that hard to understand what he's doing. You know, he, re you know, he repeats the same kinds of activities, you know, over and over again and has been doing so for many years. So it's, he's not at all, it's not difficult to predict how he's going to react. Thanks. Are you then concerned that he might not accept the result of the elections if he loses or that he could resist or refuse to hand over power? So a lot depends on what other people do and other people are less predictable than he is. But yes, he will try to do that. So yes, if he loses, he will do anything he can to remain in office, whether that includes trying to discount ballots whether it includes trying to stay in office, you know, I, you know, he will do whatever he can. That doesn't mean that everyone will enable him, you know, that everyone around him will agree that to go along with it. Um, and a lot depends on the exact circumstances of the election, what actually happens on November the 3rd. But will he try? Yes. This is one president, that, as you mentioned in your book, which never refers to democracy in his speeches, neither in reference to the United States nor in his relations with the rest of the world. Um, is Trump a Democrat? Um, no, he has no interest in democracy. I don't think he understands democracy. I don't think um, he knows the history of democracy. He certainly doesn't know the history of the United States. He doesn't understand the history of America's democratic alliances. He doesn't think they're important. Um, you know, this has never been a theme of any interest to him at all. You know, he is a person who is entirely self-centered. He is only interested in, you know, satisfying his own narcissism and his own desire for power. Um, and he, the, the, the question, I mean, I don't even think the question of what is a democracy and what is a dictatorship interests him. And he is not... He doesn't think along those lines. He's, he's, so no, he's not, he does not define himself as the leader of democracy. He does not think himself as the leader of world democracies. He is not interested in this subject at all. Your latest book is very personal and somewhat bitter in tone. You talk about friends you have lost, people who no longer talk to you. 
sometimes it feels like uh, in the text you are a political refugee. Is this like, is this the way you feel? I mean, that's... The That, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, I do still have plenty of friends. And one of the points I make at the end of the book is that we all find new alliances. And I found them and I'm, you know, perfectly happy. Um, but no, I, I did write it as a personal book and there was a reason for it. Um, and the reason is that I am a character in the book. And I have, I'm, I'm in, you know, this isn't like me writing the history of the gulag where I wasn't there, you know. And so I can attempt to be objective and I can look at the sources from different angles and I can, you know, try and tell a story based on a wide range of opinions and so on and records. Um, this is a, you know, a story that I live through. I have strong views on it. I'm a character in it. I have very, you know, particular bias um, in it. And so I thought the only way to write it was from, was subjectively from a first person point of view, because, because um, otherwise it would just be dishonest. So, so it is an attempt to, you know, write about my, you know, things that I saw and people that, some of the people that I know. Um, but In the book, you, you talk about medium-sized lies as opposed to the big lies that Orwell wrote about in his 1984 book. What do you exactly mean by, by that? What is a medium-sized lie? So this was an attempt to explain why the authoritarians of the of the modern era don't have big ideologies like the authoritarians of the past. So, you know, even in someone like Putin, who is really a um, who is you know a very at this point very evil and murderous dictator, um, he doesn't have a worked out completely worked out political philosophy the way Stalin did, you know, or or Hitler did. Um, You know, he's not very interested in, 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 in creating, I don't know, an eschatology and a view of the future and an, you know, so, um, and, and that's even more true of the populist authoritarians, you know, um, you know, in Europe and in the United States, they don't have a, you know, a, you know, a library full of books that explains what they do. Um, instead, what they use are, um, conspiracy theories, um, So, um, you know, arguments about world events or about particular events or particular people that are designed to create doubt among their followers in the institutions of their democracies. So, um, so you know, an example of the, the simple and most famous example of this is, for example, the use, not in Hungary, but not only in Hungary, of um, the idea that George Soros is running a secret campaign to undermine um, our civilization and replace all of us with Muslims. Okay, and this is a this is a this is a conspiracy theory that is repeated in many places. It has many variations. It was probably originally cooked up in Russia, but it has been used very most prominently by by the government of Hungary. Um, and it and it's just effect. It's just realistic enough and just effective enough to create um, among Hungarians doubt in their own media, doubt in international institutions, doubt in independent organizations, um, doubt in all of these institutions supposedly influenced by George Soros. And that's the purpose of it. The purpose of it is not to, I don't know, replace Christianity and come up with a you know, vast new intellectual construct for people. The point is to, to make them have doubt in the institutions that Orban wants them to have doubt in. Um, maybe an even better example of this is birtherism, 
which was the lie that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. And this was, and, and it's very important, really important, that this was the political issue that Donald Trump rose on. This was his, this is how he came into American politics, was, was using this, this repetitive, this birtherist lie. Um, what does that lie say? Well, that lie says that um, the president of the United States is illegitimate. He doesn't have the right to be president. And yet all these people in the media, in Congress, in the courts, and I don't know, in the police, they're all ignoring this fact. And they've allowed this illegitimate president to rule. You know, if you can get people to believe that, then you've automatically created in them doubt about all these institutions. You know, why should you, you know, if the New York Times is covering up the fact that the president is illegitimate, why should you believe the New York Times? You know, if the, if the you know, judiciary department is covering up the fact that the president is illegitimate, why should you believe them? So in other words, it creates this sense of doubt in democracy. Something like 25 to 30% of Americans believed in birtherism. That is a huge number, huge number. And it was enormously underrated and underestimated at the time. You know, the importance of it and the the way in which Trump was using it to discredit um, all kinds of other people and, and institutions. One of the things you call attention to is the fact that uh, despite communism being long gone in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, populist governments in these countries are fiercely anti-communist. But as, as you point out, they have in fact inherited and make full use of one of Lenin's, uh, you know, great contribution to the history of political institutions, which is the one-party state. So the idea of the one-party state was, was um, you know, was, I mean, the reason I wrote about it was because I was looking very hard at what was happening in Poland and Hungary um, and the way in which... Um, um, so-called populist, but in fact authoritarian ruling parties, were seeking to replace the elites, so-called elites, in their countries. Um, I mean, in some cases, the elites weren't very elite, but never mind. I mean, they were, they, 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 so they were seeking to replace everybody who worked in the government, everybody who worked for the state, um, everybody, you know, it, you, know, they, you know, they would like to replace everybody in the media as well. And how did they do this? They didn't have, the, the way they defined who would be in this new and alternative elite was they, they, they asked them to become members of the party, of their, of their ruling parties. Um, and they were looking for, because they needed, to, you know, this wasn't a, um, you know, they, they weren't looking for people who were good at the, their jobs or people who were qualified or people who were, you know, going to be, you know, you know, excellent, um, you know, commissioners in charge of the forestry service, you know, they were looking for people who'd be loyal to them. And so they created a sort of a new criteria, you know, for who would get promoted and who would be advanced. And this was the criteria of, you know, you are, if you're a member of our party, you get advanced. Um, and this is, of course, not at all different from, from what communists did. Um, you know, in, in, you know, in, in, in Polish, there was even an expression for it, you know, um, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, avant społeczny, you know, we will advance 
people if they are if they're members of you know members of the party regardless of whether they're qualified at doing anything um, and this is exactly the same method by which you know Orban and and um, and and Kuczynski advance people in in and not just in politics, but in the bureaucracy and in state companies and, you know, in Poland. Um, and it's actually not that different from, I mean, for Trump, it's been more difficult to do inside the U.S. government because there are a lot of, there are stringent rules about civil service and it's also very, very big. We're talking about huge numbers of people. But to the degree that he is able, he has also replaced competent bureaucrats and people with qualifications with unqualified people whom he perceives to be loyal to him. And so this is, the, this is why, I, you know, why I think it's such an important concept, because the one-party state was a way of managing power and controlling elites and making sure that people who are loyal to you are, in, um, you know, are, are, are running things. Um, and it was a very efficient, you know, you know, if you think of what, it, what did it replace in Russia, it replaced the concept of aristocracy, right? That people should get jobs based on who they're related to, you know. Um, and, you know, and it's in, in, in the modern world, it's replaced the concept of meritocracy, that people should get jobs if they're qualified for them. Um, and this is a, this is a, you know, this is an older and, um, different alternative. This is people should get jobs if they're loyal to the party or, you know, and they're loyal to me. Um, and the way that will determine whether they're loyal to party, do they have membership? Have they done things for the party in the past? Do they repeat the medium-sized lies that the party puts out? Are they willing to go along with the conspiracy theories? You know, will they, will they, will they, will they talk the way we want them to talk? And if they do that, then, then they get promoted. When, when, when in your book you analyze, um, populist uh, authoritarian parties or movements um, you know you of course point to the fact that they don't produce um, ideologies consistent uh, sets of uh, thoughts about uh, about things or policies but uh, and then you assign a, a central role to to nostalgia in order to explain the the emergence of populisms can you explain a bit why uh, nostalgia is so central uh, in your book and your in your analysis? So nos nostalgia, I think, is a it's something that is goes along with very rapid modernization, um, and you can see versions of it, for example, in Germany and France in the 19th century. You know, in societies that are changing really quickly, um, some people begin, and by the way, not wrongly. Um, they're not wrong. Um, people begin to feel that things have been lost. You know, um, I live very differently from my parents. My children will live very differently from me. Um, and and what are the things that we we don't have anymore? And, and people remember whatever it was, village life or a traditional family or um, a world in which people never really left their hometown. And they remember, you know, and, and they, uh, you know, or old institutions that, you know, have since been superseded by more efficient modern institutions. Um, and they become nostalgic for the things that are gone. Um, and there are different ways to be nostalgic about these things. I mean, you can, you can love the past and be interested in the past and enjoy old buildings and, 
and seek to preserve good things about the past um, while always remembering that there were some bad things about the past too, like, um, you know, in America, whatever. I mean, the flip side of nostalgia for the simpler life of the 1950s is, is forgetting that that was also an era when, you know, black Americans were second class citizens. So, but, but, you know, so, but, but you can, so, so you can, you can, you can be nostalgic, um, you know, while remembering that there were good and bad things about the past, or you can um, seek to recreate the past as it was and just bring it back um, and negate everything that's happened since then. And, um, and the, the foundation of almost every major nationalist project is some kind of nostalgia. You know, let, let's bring back what we had. Let's recreate the era when we were great. Let's bring back glorious leaders whom we all admired and replace these squabbling, petty Democrats, you know, or these petty, petty, you know, quarrelsome party leaders who we just don't admire the way that we admired great men, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, and almost all, um, and, and those kinds of projects which seek to replace the present with the past are almost by definition authoritarian. Uh, because they require, you know, repressing, changing, eliminating, you know, flattening out the nuances of the present and replacing it with some glorified and reimagined vision of, you know, days gone by. And this is a really important component of, I mean, as I said, it goes along with modernization because, um, because rapid change does mean that they, you know, does mean that, older ways of living or older kinds of life are lost um, and people miss them. Um, and so it is a, it's almost like they go together. And the question for modern politics is, can you, um, you know, you know, you know, can you bring back some of the things that people miss or feel is missing in modern life? Can you, or can you replace them? Can you find replacements um, without seeking to, smash up the civilization that we have and, and, you know, wipe it out. In your book, you devote a, a chapter to, to Spain uh, based on your experience uh, when you were here. Um, you describe Spain as a case that connects Trump and Brexit-style populism uh, with the illiberal Polish and Hungarian systems. You know, what was what attracted most of your attention when, when you were here and, and remember when we met? So Spain for me was a, it was a real revelation. And what was really interesting to me was that in Spain, I, you know, because of when I came, which a couple of years ago, I could watch the creation of a, you know, populist movement from scratch. You know, I mean, by the time, I, you know, in, um, you know, and, and, and in a, in a, in a very, um, what's the right word, in a very kind of targeted, intelligent, you know, data-based way. In other words, the creation of Vox was deliberate. It wasn't a sort of inchoate movement, you know, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it, it was, you know, a small group of people decided they wanted to create a movement like that they used the experiences of other countries 
um, and other movements. They were watching what happened in France. They watched what happened in the U.S. They watched what happened in, in um, you know, in, 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 in Italy. And then they sought to recreate that in Spain. And they did it successfully. I mean, um, you know, it's not a majority political movement yet, but it's a, you know, it's now an important factor in Spanish politics, right? I mean, you can't, can't talk about Spanish politics anymore without Vox. And so the, so the question was, how did they do it? What were they doing to, to create it, you know, from scratch? Um, and, you know, and I, I became really interested in their use of social media. I found a couple of interesting people in Spain who were studying exactly that. Um, and, um, and I, you know, and I, and I tried to write about how they, you know, what it was they were doing. And again, and I should also say to be, to be fair, you know, that, that the, some of the creators of Vox were also people who, um, again, felt something was missing in modern life or they, they felt they weren't hearing something from the center right that they wanted to hear. I mean, you know, I'm not going to lecture you about Spanish politics since you're the, one of the greatest experts I know. But, you know, but obviously the, um, you know, the feeling that the Spanish state wasn't reacting strongly enough to the Catalan secessionist movement, you know, all these things played into it. So they also picked up, I'm not saying that what they did was artificial, they picked up something real. You know, they were, there was real discontent and there was real dissatisfaction with with the center right. But in addition to that, they, you know, they had all this experience of other people that they used to make a political movement out of that discontent. And it was really interesting to watch. You spent also some time discussing the damage that social media has done uh, to democracy, not only at home uh, or homegrown damage, but also in terms of vulnerability to foreign interference and influence and and so on. Uh, I mean, this campaign, as it was the case in 2016, social media is, is being central, uh, with the difference that Twitter has begun to qualify Trump's tweets, inserting a notice about the inaccuracy of some of his posts and inviting users to verify them. But it's hard not to feel that this is just patching over a much deeper issue. Uh, what is your view on this? No, I think that um, these are band-aids. I mean, these are small things that the companies are now doing, you know, because they see what, what damage has been done. But the deeper story, you know, the, the deeper damage is not, you know, President Trump's tweets or, um, you know, the occasional, you know, the, you know, false stories circulating on Facebook. I mean, the real damage is the way in which the, um, particularly Facebook, but other, but also, but other social media algorithms, um, have created and deepened divisions among people, um, the way they have pushed anger and other emotions to the forefront of, um, you know, of, 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 of politics, um, the way, you know, the, I mean, we all, we all know now that the way, you know, that, that Facebook's algorithm favors emotion. And so, um, you know, a, a post on Facebook will spread faster if it makes people angry or upset. Um, you know, what if there was an algorithm instead that favored rational conversation and rational discourse? You know, we would literally be living in a different world. Um, but, but Facebook wants anger because anger keeps people on their site and that's their main goal because their goal is about, at, you know, selling products and that's good for Facebook. Um, and so, 
you know, so the deeper change has to be at the level of the algorithms, at the level of the way the companies are organized, possibly, um, uh, you know, there are possibly antitrust or anti-monopoly laws that could be applied to them. You know, there, I mean, there's a way in which face, one of the problems with Facebook is just that it's too powerful because it owns Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. Um, and there's no question that they use the data from all three to seed one another. Um, and it just simply has too much power. So, 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 so deeper kinds of regulation um, and deeper change needs to happen. What I would like to have happen, and this is a kind of, you know, you know, a long-term project, what I would like to see is for this conversation about how to regulate social media, I would like it to be a, um, an international conversation among democracies. So I would like the U.S. and Spain and France and the EU and, I don't know, Japan and Australia um, all to be part of the conversation about how we're going to regulate these things. Because what we need to be thinking about is what we want a democratic internet to look like. You know, how do we recreate the public sphere? I mean, we already know what an authoritarian internet looks like because China has created it. Um, and so what's our answer to that? And our answer cannot be that the purpose of social media in Western countries is to make Mark Zuckerberg rich. That can't be the answer. You know, if this is such a powerful tool that it's changing the way that people behave and the way they perceive their countries and the way they act politically and socially in many other ways, then we need, you know, as, as Western societies, we need some kind of better grip on it. You might have come across Anu's Bradford's book called The Brussels Effect, where she claims that uh, the European Union is uh, succeeding in regulating these companies um, where the US and others are, are failing. Uh, in fact, this could be a way out. Do you see a role for the European Union in that process? So, so Br Brussels actually has a, I mean, there are two or three ways in which Brussels could do this. One is that, of course, it's already an organization of democracies, and so it already thinks collectively. Two, we're talking about companies that are American, not European. And so, you know, the, the, the leaders of Europe and European countries are simply less susceptible to lobbying and whatever, you know, patriotism. And, you know, these are our national companies. Uh, you know, they're simply less, you know, these are foreign companies that are affecting Europeans. And thirdly, I mean, you know, what is Brussels? Brussels is a regulatory superpower. I mean, Brussels thinks about regulation of all kinds of things. Why not social media? And it's, it's in some ways the, the, the most natural and obvious place to begin the conversation. What I'd really like, as I said, I'd like Brussels to do it with the United States and not against it. But obviously, we need a different administration for that to happen. There was a time in which, uh, you know, you could be walking um, straight in London and pop across um, Boris Johnson and go into a pub and have a beer with him. I mean, you, you know him quite well. But in fact, uh, as you tell in the book, uh, he was never pro-Brexit, right? Was it, was it the case that he chose to support Brexit because he saw that it offered him a better chance of political success rather than just uh, uh, holding out to the position of Remainers in which he may have also uh, believed in, according to the two letters with the two sets of arguments that he wrote uh, about, the, about, about Brexit? I, I think in his case, it really is that simple. I mean, he thought Brexit would lose. Um, but he thought, if I become the spokesman for Brexit, I will then be the spokesman for that part of the Tory party, which is anti-European, and they will make me prime minister. 
I honestly think that was his calculation. He didn't want Brexit to happen. If you remember back, you know, four years ago, he was very shocked and distressed when it happened and had no, and he and Michael Gove were literally speechless and they behaved very strangely for some months afterwards. Um, you know, they were, they were very, they, they both expected it to lose, but they wanted to be the heroes of the anti-European part of the Tory party. Um, so I think he, that's what he thought would happen. Um, I don't think he expected to win. I don't think he has any ideas about what Brexit should be other than this guff about, you know, make England great again. Um, this kind of posturing language. I don't think he has any, any real plans or ideas for, for how to make this work. Um, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about Brexit is that, you know, one of the first things that was clear um, I mean, I think I, I said it even during the referendum campaign, but immediately afterwards was that the huge main and most important problem was Northern Ireland. And how was Northern Ireland going to leave the EU if, you know, and, and, and not have to build a border? And we've been having this conversation about Northern Ireland for four years now. Um, and the Tory party has still not, you know, the Brexiteers in the Tory party have still not conceded that they have to make hard choices. I mean, they lit, you know, they just, they keep trying to avoid this, you know, four years later, you know, they, they, they cannot understand that there has, there now has to be a border between Ireland and, and, and the rest of Britain. Um, you know, e either that or they, or they stay inside the customs union and they have already made the decision to leave. So there will be a border. Either there's going to be a border on the island of Ireland or there's going to be a border in the Irish Sea. And, and they are both bad choices for different reasons and they will both make people angry, um, but they have to choose and they just don't want to do it. And, that, and that's, I mean, in, in some ways it's the most irresponsible um, part of the whole thing. Okay. Talking to the historian in you now, um, why do you think, as you say in your book, that we are living through a Dreyfus uh, moment? So I wrote about Dreyfus because when I started writing, thinking about this book or thinking about this subject, really, I th began to ask myself, what are the other periods in history when this has happened before, when people become very divided? You know, people who were once on the same side don't speak to each other. Um, and the most obvious, famous story is the one of the Dreyfus Affair. And so I, began, I read a lot about it. You know, I read several books about it and I thought about it. And, 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 you know, of course, the amazing thing about the Dreyfus Affair is that the, you know, the, the, the political division that it represents between, on the one hand, people who, who treated the French state like a kind of mystical, you know, um, mythical, you know, institution to which you are unquestioningly loyal based on your ethnic heritage and Joan of Arc. And on the other hand, the French state is a, you know, is meant to be, you know, treat every citizen, you know, equally with justice, you know, with a kind of abstract idea of justice, you know, no matter whether they're ethnically French or not. You know, these kind of two ideas about what the French state is supposed to be and and what is this, this, these two ideas, you know, have been clashing throughout the 20th century and remain with us today. And the, and the, and the, and the division, you know, those two visions of what the state is and who it's for and what, and what it should be, you know, remain the, you know, that remains the dividing line in Poland. Um, you know, it, it remains an, an important argument in Spain. It remains an important argument in the United States. Um, 
And so, you know, and so, so, you know, I didn't want to exaggerate the story of Dreyfus, but it's a, but it's a kind of early, you know, one of the, you know, again, it happens in a moment of very rapidly modernizing, you know, 19th century France. I mean, it's another indication, uh, you know, this is, this is one of the core conflicts of our era, and this is one of the first places in which it emerged. And that's why I thought Dreyfus was so interesting. That's why I put it in the book. You know the Republicans quite well. You've written a lot about them, lived in Washington at some point. You know, you were very close to McCain, but then, you know, he broke with you because you criticized him for supporting Sarah Palin. Uh, At, uh, and then, um, paradoxically, McCain ended up being the last Republican standing against Trump. Uh, and now, uh, Republicans also face this challenge or this dilemma. Do you think you know, there is any hope that the Republicans will regain their, may I say, decency and turn against uh, Trump? So there is. I mean, a lot depends on what happens in November. A lot. Um, If there is a landslide and Joe Biden wins and he wins the Senate, the Democrats win the Senate, um, then there is a chance that a part of the Republican Party having, you know, will say we lost, you know, with this kind of garbage. We need to change ourselves. We need a different attitude instead of tactics. And then there is a possibility for the party to renew itself. And, you know, You know, America needs a conservative party. It needs a center-right party. And so I hope that happens. Um, if the election is close, um, that might not happen. I mean, it, if Trump loses and it's close, um, you know, then you might have the next, then you might have an argument, but struggle between, you know, I don't know, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Jared Kushner, you know, and Don Jr. about who should be the next leader of the Republican Party, you know, or Tucker Carlson, one of the Fox News presenters. Um, and then you will have people who seek to perpetuate the legacy of Trump and Trumpism. And then you will not have a renovated Republican Party. Obviously, if Trump wins, the party remains the, the party of Trump. So really the only chance for some kind of um, real change is for Trump to lose badly. Um, you know, regarding McCain, it's very interesting. Cindy McCain, his widow, um, has not only endorsed Joe Biden, but has, you know, it has some position. I'll, I'll have to, you know, she's, she's, she's openly part of the elect Biden um, in Arizona committee and is probably a factor in why Biden and, and the Democratic senator, senatorial candidate are ahead in Arizona. So, Um, so that so the, a lot of Biden Republicans are now not just you know not just doubtful of Trump. They're um, I'm sorry, a lot of yeah. So are they're actively working for Joe Biden? Last question: Do you want to be on record about who's going to win the next uh, U.S. election, or maybe you want to send a WhatsApp to me and I promise not to disclose it if it's uh, you know if you don't make it? I honestly, I I. I, I can't, you know, I only know what's in the newspapers. I mean, I only know what's in the polling. You know, I don't have, I'm not even in the United States. I don't have any kind of, you know, intuition. I, the only, the only, my only guess can be based on what I, literally what I read in, in, um, in you know, in the, 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 you know, I read the polls like, like you do and like everybody else. I mean, right now, 
the polls show that Joe Biden will win. You know, but at this same stage in the electoral cycle, they also showed that Hillary Clinton would win. So I don't know who will win. Well, let's hope we don't have another election night like, like the one we had in 2016. So uh, thank you, Anne, for your, for your time. It's been a great talk. And, um, and we are really thankful to you for spending some time uh, with us. Thank you. Okay. See you, see you soon, I hope. Somewhere. Bye. Bye.